cool. Well, hey, glad you guys found us today. Thanks for being a little bit flexible. There was apparently some sort of flood in our other room, and so it was raining from the ceiling and stuff. So I'm glad you, glad you found us. Glad you're here. Uh, I want to start out this morning with a question, so get you kind of talking, get you kind of thinking a little bit on the topic we're going to be addressing this morning. Uh, and I want you to think about this, and uh, the, the, the question is this. What do you think that you need to do to grow more spiritually, to become more of the, the man or the woman uh, that God intends for you to be? What do you think you need to do to do that? I want you, if you're comfortable and whatever, I'd, I'd encourage you, I want you to turn to a person or two or three around you and just kind of talk about your answers. What are, what are some of the things that you think you need to do to really take that next step in your faith, to really come alive, to really grow spiritually? Go ahead. It's okay to talk in church. Ready, set, go. Talk to some people around you. What do you think? All right, so what do you think? Let's just jump in, throw out some, some of your answers. What are some of the things that came out? Read the Bible more. Yep, what else? Spending time with God, absolutely. What else? Surrender my agenda, absolutely. What else? Don't be shy. Pray more, yeah, absolutely. What else? Sin less, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What else? Other things? He will be vague about it in this context, right? <laughs> we'll just put it in the sin category. Don't do that. What <laughs> other things? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it this week and thinking, yeah, all the things you mentioned, right? Things like I, read the Bible more, pray more, give some things up, like maybe smoking or swearing or drinking or something like that. We probably need to start doing some things more, maybe caring for the poor more, maybe giving more of my income away. We need to spend more time maybe with our spouses or our kids, maybe investing more spiritually. They're doing devotions as a family, maybe praying with my wife more, maybe doing some things less, maybe watching TV less, maybe, you know, cutting some things out, maybe volunteering more. I mean, all kinds of things. Maybe I need to be a better employee. Maybe I need to build more relationships with, you know, at, at, you know, with people from within the church or maybe with people in my neighborhood. Maybe I need to build some more relationships so I can be more strategic and more intentional. That would be taking another step. I was just thinking about all the different things like that that just tend to come to mind anytime I think about what, what do I need to do? What else? What's all this. We'll keep going. Anyway, uh, I was thinking about all the different things that come to mind. Sometimes I think it's easy to get almost overwhelmed. Like there's so much, so many things we're supposed to be doing and so much stuff that, you know, I, I really should do if I was a really a good Christian and, and all these kinds of things. And, and I'm just like, sometimes it's almost paralyzing, isn't it? Sometimes it's just overwhelming. And so um, I was thinking about it this week and just thinking, I think sometimes we make it way too Like, re- 
supposed to do this and not do this. You're supposed to do that and not do that. And uh, in fact, every every rabbi, every teacher had his own rules. In addition to everything that the, the Old Testament law says, then they would take it and they kind of break it down even more into hundreds more. So not only does God say that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, but they would tell you exactly what that meant. You can't go over, you can't walk over this many miles on the Sabbath because one step more and that would be work. You, you can't do this. You can't do this. I mean, they would just have all these individual, every teacher would have their own sort of understanding of, of what the law was, their own rules, their own guidelines, their own things that they would teach to their followers. And those specifics that each rabbi, each teacher had came to be known as their yoke, the yoke of their teaching. And then onto the scene right comes Jesus. And Jesus is teaching, and he, he wants to let his followers know about what his yoke is like. And he says this in, uh, in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon me, oh, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are very complicated religious systems that tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. They were putting excruciating kinds of weight on people. Go, well, I want to please God. I want to be in right relationship with God. So I got this and this and this and this. And Jesus takes that, steps back, and tries to make it simple, right? He says, you know what? Here's the deal. Why don't you come to me and follow me, and you will find rest for your souls. Simple. Or another time, there was a religious sort of uh, expert, an expert on the Bible, a teacher on the Bible who came to Jesus, and uh, he was actually kind of trying to trick him a little bit, but he asked the question, he says, what do I have to do? Like, what's the most important of all the law? What's what's the main thing that I need to do? He's kind of trying to trap him into saying, well, you need to do this, but you don't really have to do this, right? And then he can say, ah, you told me, like, we caught you kind of thing. And so uh, this, this religious leader comes and says, Jesus, which, which are the important laws? Which are the ones that I really need to follow? He actually quotes something called the Shema we talked about when Bill Ellison was here, right? Uh, he says, here's the deal. It comes down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And so the second one is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself because all of the law and all of the prophets, all the, all the other stuff really gets boiled down and springs from these two commands. Jesus says, Them. He, was, he was 
the first step that you have for them on their spiritual journey is you would say that you said, come and follow me with me. Each one of his disciples, he, he recruited, he said, come, follow me. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to zero zoom in on uh, one particular uh, story, one particular instance of this where Jesus interacts with uh, with somebody that would become his disciple, the disciple Matthew, um, and uh, we're going to learn from him. And so some lessons about following Jesus and what that looks like and what that means. Okay? Fair enough? You guys with me? Pay no attention to the people behind the curtains, right? <laughs> it's like the Wizard of Oz all over again. Don't, don't pay any attention. We're going to, uh, if you've got your, uh, you guys have the, Sounds promising. Do you guys have the uh, uh, Ignite Church app? If you've got the app on your phones, I'd encourage you to grab that because it has the scriptures and stuff that we're going to be talking about. Or, hey, or you can follow along on the screens. So that'd be great too. Um, but we're just going to kind of walk through the story. It's like four or five verses. And uh, we're just going to learn some lessons, look at this whole idea of following Jesus. Because as we'll see, not only did Jesus 2,000 years ago approach his followers and tell them to, hey, come follow me. But it's the exact same call that Jesus gives to you and to me every day of our lives where he's, in, he's, he's crying out, would you come and would you follow me? All right? So with that, we will um, get going. We're going to start out in uh, Matthew 9, verse 9. says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Let me just hit the pause button for one second there and just say, so so Matthew is sitting at a tax collector's booth because Matthew is a, you guys are a sharp bunch. Ding, 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 right answer. Matthew is a tax collector. Now let me just explain that for just a little bit because in Rome in that day, they would sell the rights to tax the people um, in any given province. Wow, all kinds of stuff is happening behind me. Uh, whoever bought the tax collecting rights would sort of set up a multi-level marketing scheme, right? They'd kind of set up an Amway kind of thing of tax collectors uh, to, <laughs> to do that. Um, and they would go into a, a conquered Roman territory like Israel, and they would hire Israelites to actually go and tax their own people, to collect taxes for Rome. Now, here's the deal, right, is that let's say Rome had a particular amount of, of tax that they wanted to collect from every uh, man, woman, and child throughout, their, throughout this uh, conquered province. So they would give them a specific amount of money, <laughs> a specific amount of money that they needed to collect, this is a lot of work up here. I'm just saying, <laughs> like, are, are you guys with me? All right, a, a specific amount of money they needed to collect. Like, let's say, let's say arbitrarily, like it was $10. Every person's supposed to pay a tax of $10, but they would sell these rights to these people and say, okay, but you can collect your salaries and anything above and beyond that you can get out of these people is yours. So let's say they would kind of figure out and say, well, I think we could probably swindle another five bucks, another 50% out of people, and we could still get them to pay it. And so they would go, come into this province and say, okay, everybody owes 15 bucks. That's what Rome says. Everybody, every man, woman, child owes us now $15 in taxes. And just in case there was any problems, they usually send Roman soldiers out with them to collect taxes to be a little bit more persuasive. So how do you think the people, uh, people of Israel would feel about tax collectors, people that were of their own people, right? They're, they're, they also are Jews. They're also Israelites. How do you think they'd feel about people coming around to, to collect taxes like that, trying to get as much money as they can out of you? You think you'd have warm and fuzzy feelings towards them? Okay, you guys are being pretty weak. You think they feel good about them? 
Think they feel bad about them? They were known in that day and age as like swindlers, right? As thieves, basically crooks, that kind of thing. They did not in the least bit feel favorable towards them. They, these people were known for exploding, uh, exploiting, I should say, not exploding, that'd be a little weird, but exploiting their own fellow citizens. And so oftentimes they would sit at crossroads, again, with Roman soldiers behind them. They would force people to pay their taxes to Rome as much as they could get out of them. Um, as I said, these people are known as traitors, exploiters, swindlers in addition. Uh, the only other thing you should probably know is also tax collectors, uh, by definition, were considered ceremonially unclean, which means what? They couldn't go and worship. They weren't allowed into the temple courts, not even the outer courts. They were sort of excluded from worship. They were considered very far from God. It was so bad that even in the pages of Scripture, you can kind of see this whole, this whole uh, thing played out because there's kind of two groups that represented the lowest of the low of, in, in Jewish society, right? One of those groups was known as sinners. The other group was known as tax collectors, right? They got their own category. It's as, if, it's as if they're saying sinners are like a step up from there, right? So you got the prostitutes, you got, the, I mean, you got like, you got the liars and the stealers and the cheats and the people that commit murder and adultery and all. Those are all in this category over here. They're sinners. But then there's also, you know, like a step down from there. Well, at least, I mean, you might be a murderer, but at least you're not a tax collector, right? I mean, that's sort of the idea of the whole thing. Tax collectors were sort of known as the pond scum of the earth in that context. And so, but, and so uh, the reason I explain all of that is, I mean, just imagine, just imagine what this is like. This guy is, he, he may very well have been kicked out of his own family. I mean, oftentimes tax collectors in that day and age would be. Uh, their, their own family would, would disown them, would kick them out when they did this. Oftentimes people wouldn't do this because they wanted to. They would, they would choose this path because they had nothing else they could do. They had been passed over. They had been looked over. And so they, they choose this life of crime, you know, sort of be the equivalent of maybe like gang life today, right, kind of thing. Uh, they, they, they choose this lifestyle and they are considered down here in society. It's a bad kind of deal. And so just picture then uh, Jesus walking up to him and his disciples are following along behind him, right? And you can just imagine they walk up to this guy and they're like, oh, here we go. The disciples are thinking we're, <laughs> Jesus is going to give him a piece, of, <laughs> a piece of his mind. He's going to tell him what a bad sinner he is, right? How he needs to repent, how he needs to give back the money he's been stealing and exploiting from all kinds of people. This, Jesus is going to let him have it. Instead, Jesus walks up and he says to him, he says uh, this, verse nine, right? He says, he says follow me, Matthew, he walks up to the tax collector booth, right, with the Roman soldiers probably right behind him. He says, Matthew, come and follow me, he told him. And Matthew slides his chair back, stands up, and follows him. Imagine what that moment would be like. First of all, I, I can imagine the disciples <laughs> that are with him going, wait, Jesus, what? Like, what are, you, what are you doing, Jesus, right? This guy is a tax collector. He's not even a sinner. He's a tax collector, Right? Come on. You can imagine, uh, uh, you know, Peter and some of the others going, you know, you know we have kind of reputations to protect. I mean, we have a good family business. We've been to this guy's a tax collector. You're inviting him into our band, a little band of merry followers or whatever they are, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know. But he's like, come on. Come on, Jesus. What are you thinking? Why don't you tell him to get his stuff together, right? Why don't you tell him to take it up? Of you? Why don't you tell him? Why don't you Tell him what he's done wrong, what he needs to fix. But instead, that's not, that's not what happens, is it? Jesus comes up to him and he says, he says, Matthew, I see you, right? Come, I, I choose you even. 
come and follow me. It's how it always begins. It's how it always works when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to getting right with God, when it comes to becoming a Christ follower. It starts with Jesus taking the initiative and saying, come and follow me. I read some really interesting stuff, I should say. Uh, I read two, diff- two different uh, authors this week quite a bit, and so my, my stuff has been influenced by them. I'll just put it out there, just to give credit where credit is due. One is from Andy Stanley. He's done some great writing and, and stuff on this. The other one is a guy by the name of Ray Vandalon, who uh, has... He does fascinating research on rabbis and on stuff in the Middle East during that kind of first century um, time frame and has uh, some amazing writings about the relationship between rabbis and their followers. And so I'm just going to share some of that with you. Ray's done, uh, again, a ton of study on the, these kind of relationships between rabbis and pupils, rabbis and disciples, um, kind of the entourage during, during the time of Jesus. It was a real common um, occupation for, uh, or common occurrence, I should should say for all the rabbis or the teachers of Jesus day to have followers to have apprentices of sorts in a small country with a very small population they were well aware that it, it would really only take one generation for their entire religious way of life to die out and so this passing on the faith from teachers to students to teachers to students right kind of over and over and from even from parents to kids and all that it was a, it was of huge importance in Israel and uh it was a very big deal and so uh all of the religious leaders, all of the rabbis of that day would have, they would apprentice young men to carry on their teachings and to pass on what they had been taught and what they had learned. And it was a huge deal in that day to be selected to be the disciple of a rabbi. Rabbis were the most uh, respected. They were the best educated. They were the most powerful. They were the best of the best of the country. They were sort of uh, at the top of the social ladder. It was a very prestigious role. And to be selected as an apprentice was a huge deal. It was every kid's dream to one day be able to become a rabbi. Sort of like dreaming of, you know, in a different day, maybe in the 1950s, let's say. It was maybe dreaming of, like, like dreaming of becoming president or becoming a senator. Not so much today, but, right, I mean, like, something that would be very well respected and, and have uh, some prestige with it. If you were the best of the best, you would go on to become a rabbi one day. And so rabbis had a very... Uh, careful um, selection process to figure out who would be their apprentice. They would go through uh, and screen potential candidates, testing them on their knowledge of the Old Testament. And of course, every kid by the time they were a teenager would have the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, right? That was, that was a given in that culture, which again, for many of us is like, really? But they would memorize uh, the books of Moses, the, the first five books. Um, and uh, but the rabbi was going to go further, just beyond. Of course, they know they could recite the words, but the rabbis would take it further, and they would, they would refer to different things and see if these potential disciples had understanding of what it was all about, if they could, if they could teach, if they could explain and, and uh, you know, carefully explain the truths that were found in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so they would go on and ask them questions and give them kind of quizzes and test their understanding, all that kind of stuff. And after careful scrutiny, uh, the rabbi would take the best of the best and he, would, he, he, was, he was trying to understand, does this student have what it takes? Can this student become like me? Could they be a great teacher, a great rabbi one day? And if it was true, if they thought, if they saw potential, they would go up to that potential disciple and they would say, follow me. Isn't that interesting? 
It's sort of like saying, I choose you. I think you have what it takes. The disciple would typically be age 13 or 14. They would at that point move out of their home and they would devote their lives to becoming like the rabbi. Whatever the rabbi did, the students would do. If you're walking down the road, right, and the, and, uh, the rabbi picks up a, a blade of grass and sticks it between his teeth, the followers, I kid you not, would, would pick up a blade of grass and stick it between their teeth. Uh, rabbis were known that they had blessings and prayers for all kinds of things, just about everything you can think of. I mean, even <laughs> something that you don't want to think of, but <laughs> they had prayers for everything. And so where the rabbi went and the, the way he prayed, the followers would pray the same way. Whatever they taught, the followers would teach the same thing. The goal of every disciple, the goal of every follower was to become like their rabbi. There's even a, uh, a phrase that uh, they got used in that day, which I always think is just interesting. It said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, <laughs> which you're like, really? Like, but, but what they're saying is, may you, may you be so close to him, may you walk so closely behind him that even the dirt that gets kicked up off his sandals will get on you, right? Which, again, is sort of a weird thing, but they're saying, would you, I hope that you'd be so close to your rabbi that you would become like him. Now, imagine with me for a minute what it would be like to be Matthew, Again, Matthew was not 13 or 14 years old. He was older, likely, right? He had been passed over. If, if he would have been chosen at that age to be a disciple, he would have had a very different trajectory of his life, but he wasn't chosen. He wasn't chosen to be a disciple. He wasn't chosen to be an apprentice in one of the trades. He wasn't chosen for anything. He's down at the bottom of the social ladder. He had been overlooked. He was not the best of the best. In fact, he would have been considered the worst of the worst. His self-esteem, probably not all that great in that era. And yet Jesus comes up to him and says, Matthew, follow me. Matthew, I've chosen you. Matthew, I, I think you, I know you can become like me. Matthew, I have good plans for you. Come and follow me. What an honor it would have been to be chosen to have somebody say, I believe in you that much. I see potential in you. Come and follow me. The amazing part for me as I was thinking about it this week is that Jesus didn't ask him to change first. He didn't give him a list of everything he had done wrong. He didn't scold him. He didn't require Matthew to to, uh, get all churchy on him or anything like that, recite a bunch of fancy religious words or memorize anything. He didn't attend a class. He didn't uh, require him to achieve a, a certain moral perfection <laughs> uh, first. He didn't do any of that stuff. The only call, the first call to Matthew is just come follow me. Matthew, would you trust me just this much? And would you come and get to know me? Would you come and do life with me? Would you come and let me do life with you? Would you come and follow him? Follow me, Jesus says. This is how it always begins, an invitation to follow. You know, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea about what it means to follow Jesus. Some of us have picked up from churches or from pastor types like me. We've been told or we believe for, for whatever reason that unless we get our act together first, right, unless we quit all of our addictions, unless we turn our lives around first, that we aren't going to be welcomed by Jesus. But it's simply not true. Jesus calls to Matthew right where he's at. And he says, Matthew, come and follow me. It's not what Matthew was doing. It's not what Matthew had done that Jesus was most interested in in that moment. But it was who he was following. That was the main thing for Jesus. 
And so he calls to him. And you know what? Jesus calls to us, to you and to me, every day of our lives in the same way. He says, would you come and follow me today? He's calling to you and to me this morning, regardless of what's happening in your life right now, regardless of who you're with, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your job situation, your marriage situation, regardless of how irresponsible you may have been, regardless of what you may be hooked on or how you've treated your spouse or your kids, Jesus is calling to you this morning. He's calling, come and follow me. Would, would you come and follow I have chosen you. You to become like me, Jesus says. Would you come and follow me? Come and walk with me. Just take one little baby step. Scoot your chair back. Stand up and follow, follow me, Jesus says. I've chosen you. I want you. We'll worry about all that other stuff later, but for now, you follow me. The only thing matters that matters in our lives is how we respond to that call of Christ. Let's go on, verse 10 says this, while Jesus was having dinner, so this is the very next verse, right? Jesus says, follow me, and he went, he left uh, his tax collector's booth, he stood up, and he followed Jesus, and where did they go? Uh, Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and the disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, actually, I just love this part. If you, if you were to read the parallel passage in Luke, it makes it pretty clear that it's not just that they're having dinner. They're having a, do you remember? They're having a party at Matthew's house. That's what's happening, right? Matthew invites all of his friends and Jesus, right, to come over to his house and to, uh, to hang out together, to be together. It's a crazy kind of thing. And if you wonder how many, there was a huge number of people, Luke says, Now, if you were to ask the question, the the first thing after Jesus invites somebody to follow him, if you were to ask the question, what do you think the very next thing Jesus would do in your life would be? I bet none of us would say, go to a party at Matthew's house, right? And I mean, think, think of the people that would have been there, right? He wasn't just a sinner. He was a tax collector. So who do you think is there? Tax collectors, sinners, it's like sort of the, 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 the bottom of the food chain kind of people. Oh, your parents would be so proud, right? I mean, like, oh, look over here. We've got these sinful people. We've got those addicted people. We've got these whatever people, right? I mean, we, oh, how nice. Those are the people that, that Jesus is hanging with at Matthew's house. Like I said, your parents would be so pleased. Large company of them. And they're eating, they're drinking, they're hanging out together. It was a party with ceremonially unclean people. (laughs) These were the people that wouldn't even be allowed to worship in the temple. But that's the first place that Jesus goes. He pursues Matthew. He goes with them and hangs out with his friends. Jesus calls Matthew, follow me. And then he goes with him to his house and his party. I was thinking about it this week and thinking, man, I don't know if that's, if that's the Jesus that we think of in our minds, right? I, I think some of us have in our minds that we, a, a Jesus and a God that we think prefers to hang out with religious, squeaky, clean people all the time and that totally disses and distances from anybody that, that might be far from God. And yet, can I just suggest to you, and I think we'll see more in the text in just a minute, if that's the picture of God that we have in our head, I'm not so sure that we're following the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. He was referred to as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
he seemed to be present with people that recognized their lives were a wreck, whose lives were a mess, who you didn't have to tell them, right? They totally understood. They were in need of saving. You didn't have to tell them they were far from God. They understood they were far from God. And yet Jesus seems to to unbelievably just be drawn to those kind of people again and again and again. And not only did he like them, and not only did, did he love them, but it seems as though when you read the stories, they liked hanging out with him too. There was something about the way he loved and he embraced, something about the grace and the mercy that came out of his mouth that attracted people that were very far from God. Let me just speak to this for just a second. I'm gonna speak to kind of two categories of people um, that, that you might ad- identify with in this story. The first one is this. If, if you are, are maybe here today and maybe you identify a little bit more with Matthew or others that might have been at his party, Maybe you're feeling kind of far from God these days. Maybe you're blatantly aware of your own emptiness or your own sin or your own distance from God. And maybe somewhere along the line, people like, like me in churches like this one have complicated matters for you. And maybe you felt like you got to clean your act up first before you could ever come and follow Jesus, before you could ever be welcomed by him. And if that's you, first of all, let me say, I'm sorry. We have, screw, we have complicated something that's meant to be extremely simple. And what I want you to hear this morning is if that's you, then Jesus loves and even leans heavily in the direction of those that fall into this kind of category. He loves hanging out with people who are needy. He loves hanging out with people who don't have their act all together. He loves hanging out with people that don't have a lot of hope all the time or don't recognize or that recognize in their own soul that something is missing or something is awry. And listen to this, he meets you where you're at. And with a simple, with a simple call, come follow me. I've chosen you. I want you. I have good plans for you. Would you come and follow me? Regardless of where you're at, what you've done, what your past or present is consumed by or characterized by, Jesus says, come and follow me. It's his call for you today. And if you'll listen, and if your heart will be soft and open, I think you'll hear him calling to you today, come and let's do life together. Come and let me show you how life was meant to me to be. Would you come and follow me? One more side note on that, on the, along those lines. Did Matthew at this point, did Matthew believe that Jesus was God? Huh? What do you think? No. Did, did Matthew believe anything about Jesus along those lines? Savior, God, Messiah, anything at this point? He's, he doesn't believe. He's not a believer. Like if you want to characterize this, he is a sinner. He's not a believer. And yet it's in that context that Jesus calls and says, come and follow me. Sometimes we get things in all the wrong order and you think I gotta get, gotta get all my belief things figured out first. I gotta figure out exactly who. And Jesus is just saying, look, Wherever you're at with God, whatever the deal is with your past, right? Whatever's happening, just fine. Just come and follow me. Come and learn who I am. Come and draw near to me. Let me show you who I am. Let me teach you about the life that you're born for. Would you come and follow me? First category of people. Second category um, of people that I'll just mention real quick, and I think this is interesting, uh, but uh, again, if you just don't get 
if you just don't get Jesus hanging out with the riffraff, right? If you don't get Jesus hanging out with the crowd, if you think that he maybe prefers to hang out with the religious people rather than the lows of society, then can I just suggest to you that maybe you don't know him that well. Maybe your faith has become a little bit more complicated than it should be. Maybe you've become a little bit more of a Pharisee, sort of the religious leaders in this story, and perhaps have stalled out in your own soul in following Jesus. Maybe your eyes have become to focus too much on other people and what they're doing or not doing and not enough on Jesus and your own soul and just learning to follow and stay in step with him. And can I just suggest that if that's, if, and I think, let me just back up and just say, I think all of us have the capacity to do that. I think the longer you're around Christianity, I think all of us can do that sometimes where we lower our eyes on other people and be like, well, what about them? What, what, what about them? We can start to look down our noses or think that we're a little bit better because we kind of think we have our stuff together or whatever. And can I just suggest to you that maybe if that's you, maybe it's time to confess your pride, to confess that maybe you've missed Jesus a little bit in the story and maybe it's time to turn back to him and say, Jesus, would you forgive me and help me to follow? Help me to follow. Set my eyes back on you, God. Make my heart like your heart, right? Make my life like your life. I'm sorry I've gotten off base here. Fair enough? I think it's a prayer probably all of us should pray uh, from time to time. God, forgive us for too easily judging those that you don't in this, in this instance, right? And, inst- and taking our eyes off of it. Instead, help us to follow you. Again, it's not primarily about what you're doing or what you've done, but Jesus is most interested in who you're following. Don't set your eyes on other people. Set your eyes on him. Learn to follow him. Let's go on in the story. Verse 12 says, On hearing this, Jesus said to the, to the religious leaders, right? He says this. He says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, this could have been offensive to people, right? If Matthew overheard this, he could have been offended and said, are you saying that I'm sick? (laughs) Could have been offensive. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have come for people that in the very honest moments of their own soul and their own heart, they realize that something is broken inside of them. Something is wrong. Something is off. I'm extending an invitation to people who look in the mirror and think, you know, nobody knows this. Nobody knows that there's something wrong but I know there's something wrong. I'm extending this invitation to people that maybe have a habit and have done everything they could possibly do to break it, to break the addiction, to break the cycle, to break the habit, and in their heart of hearts, they know I need help, right? I can't do it on my own. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just can't seem to get free of this thing. I, there's something sick in me. There's something wrong in my soul and I can't get out. I need save, I'm in need of saving. Jesus is saying, I've come for people that recognize there's a problem. Maybe somebody that has, an, uh, somebody that's addicted to something or another. Maybe it's some, somebody that, uh, a couple even, that's married and they've been trying and trying and trying and trying to work on their marriage and to try and salvage something. But they're like, you know what? If we're honest, our marriage is on life support here. Clear. I mean, they're like, we've tried everything we can do and we can't, we can't fix it. Jesus is saying, I've come for people like that. Maybe it's a, a, a relationship with one of your kids or something. You're like, you know what? As hard as I try, I can't, 
I can't do it. I can't get through to them. I can't lead them in the right direction. I can't give them what they need. Maybe it's your finances. that You're like, you're looking at your life and going, I don't know how I got here, but my finances, there's something sick in my finances. Something is not right, and I can never get out. I don't, I don't know what to do. Jesus says, you know, for those, of, for those of us that recognize that there's something off, that there's something missing, that, some, that we're in need of saving, he says, you know what, I've got good news for you because Jesus came for the likes of you for those that recognize their own sin, that recognize, man, I am in need of saving. He says, it's for those people I've come, for, for those that think they've got it all together, the righteous, quote, quote, think, I don't really need Jesus' help. I don't really need God's help. I got this. He's like, no, I didn't, I didn't really come for you. Because whether we want to admit it or not, all of us, fall into the sinner and tax collector categories, right? All of us fall down to the bottom of the food chain. All of us, in moments of honesty, have to turn back and say, you know what? We need you. Would you come and rescue me? Would you come and lead me? I need you, Jesus. For those of us that recognize our need, Jesus, I can imagine with a smile on his face, says, I have come for you. Not for the healthy or those that think they are, but for the sick. He says, come and follow me. Goes on, it says, verse, uh, verse 12, he reinforces this two more times. Verse 12, it says, but go and learn, he says to the religious leaders, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, this, these religious leaders would have hated this entire conversation because they consider themselves the smartest person in any room. And so for Jesus to say, go and learn something implies that they didn't know something, right? Kind of offensive at that point. But he says, go and learn this, that my priority, that's what that literally means, I desire, my priority is mercy, is to be merciful and loving and forgiving towards people, gracious towards people instead of sacrificial. He's saying, I'm more into redemption. I'm more into rescue than routine. I'm far more interested in people that realize they don't have it all together and know that they are in need of saving than I am people who think they've got their act together. And then he closes with this, uh, verse 13. Uh, it's kind of Jesus' mission statement. He says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is what I want you to see here this morning. Jesus has extended an invitation to you and to me. He extends the same invitation to you and me every day, every moment of our lives. Regardless if you've done and been around church for 30 years or 30 minutes. And this call is not to change. It's not to get your stuff together. The call is not to try harder. The call is not to get your life all cleaned up on your own. That's not the call. His invitation is just a baby step and it's extended to sinners like you and me. And he says this, he says, come and follow me. If there's even a glimpse inside of you that recognizes that things are not right, if you recognize that you are in need, then this invitation is for you. And Jesus says, I want you to know, I've, I've extended this invitation for you. Would you be willing to take a step to let the chair slide back, to stand up and come follow me in your day-to-day?
in your life, in your family. Would you come and follow me because I've come for you. I've come to heal you. I've come to rescue you. I've come to redeem you. I've come for you. I have great things in store. If you'll just take a step and follow me, you're in for an adventure you can't even imagine. I don't know where you're at with God today, friends. I'm not sure uh, what the specific application is, but man, this is, my, this is what my prayer has been uh, for this series is that you and I would be people that are humble enough, that recognize our need enough, that our souls, we can even be aware, crave what only God can provide enough, that we would start doing our days every day this way, like that, that before we, we get up and our feet hit the floor in the morning, that we're, we're just turning our eyes and our heart Godward and just saying, God, I want to follow you today. Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I hear the call and I want to respond. I'm in. Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you fill me? Would you be my God today? Would you reveal yourself to me and your plans and your will? And with your help, I want to follow. Teach me to follow you today. And when the time comes that we, uh, that he, he does lead us throughout the day and we screw up, because how many people think they'll screw up? from following him yeah <laughs> right thanks then you want to know what the next step is God I'm sorry I blew it I want to follow you can, can you restore me bring me back teach me and lead me and with your help I want to follow I think so much of the Christian life so much of life with God life with Jesus has to do with having hearts like that that are soft that recognize our own need and that are just turned Godward and saying, God, I want to follow you. He's calling to you this morning, friends. Again, whether you're brand new to this stuff or you've been around it forever, he's calling to you and, and me again this morning and today, saying, will you follow me? What will your response be? What is your response? My hope and prayer is that we, again, we would be people to say, Jesus, I'm in, I want to follow you. Let's close in prayer. God, that's our, uh, that's our cry. We hear your call this morning just saying, come follow me, God, in our response. We just want to open up our hearts, our hands, our lives, and just say, Jesus, come and lead us. Come and, and reveal yourself to us. Come and we want to follow you. We want to live our lives with you. God, for the ways that we've blown it, for the ways we've uh, been prideful, for the ways we've gone our own way or whatever, God, we just ask, would you forgive us and cleanse us? Restore us and lead us forward from this point. We need you. We entrust ourselves to you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.